0: Come, Holy Spirit, and give us open hearts and open ears to hear and have the Word of God implanted into us this morning. I pray that you would give me a mouth to preach, uh, grant me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I pray, Lord God, for the unction of the Holy Spirit to be upon me as preacher and on the congregation as those who are receiving God's Word this morning. I also, Lord, especially pray for encouragement and comfort for those who particularly need it, and also, Lord, for conviction where we need that as well from your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We thank you, and we receive now the gift of your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I don't know. My mic... To me, it sounds a little hot. Is it hot in the house, or am I just as loud as I always am? Just a, a little bit hot? Okay, maybe. All right. Well, anyway, uh, before Kevin left, in fact, I actually saw him again yesterday before we went to Neshota House, I asked him if it would be okay if I preached about a, a topic that I'm passionate about, And every time I serve in a church, uh, whether it's uh, as the canon missioner for West Virginia and Appalachian, I'm serving those churches, particularly in West Virginia, or whether I'm teaching the foundations course and some of those new church plants or even now here with you guys in uh, in the valley here at Church of the Lamb I always want to I always want to come to this point of discipleship because I think it's one of those places where pastors feel intimidated to speak about it's, it can seem rather self-serving if you're a pastor to talk about the topic of radical generosity in the church. Yeah, y'all be radical generous, radically generous and give me a raise. Yeah, so it, you, you see how that goes, right? But it, this is really a biblical principle that I'm passionate about because it brings me personal joy as a disciple, and it has been such a blessing in my life. And by the way, if you are a guest with us this morning, I, w- I want to just say, tell this quick story. Um, Early in my Christian life, there was a period where uh, I was in, in the state that we would technically call being backslidden. I don't even, do you still backslide anymore? I don't know if people do that. Uh, but I was in a backslidden condition, and every time I went to church, the preacher was talking about giving. So I don't know what that meant. Uh, so it's just like, oh, great, this is all the church ever talks about. But if you are a guest with us this morning, I want you to know, though, that this is an important point of discipleship And you should be applying this in your home church, wherever that may be. So this morning we're going to be opening God's Word about what it means to be a giver. And as we do so, I want you to pay special attention to how we address this biblical topic. Following the teaching of Jesus Christ and His apostles, we do not primarily, as Christians, we do not primarily think about money and giving from a practical or a needs-based framework But this is so important, and if you're writing some things down, I might say, hey, write this down. So write this down. We address this from the framework of the character of God. We address this topic from the framework of the character of God and God's work of sanctification in the life of the believer. So it's the character of God and the sanctification of our lives as believers. God does have... Uh, practical uses for our giving, obviously. But it begins, giving begins as a part of the spiritual life and as a part of the pursuit of holiness. The pursuit of holiness. So this is so important. Giving has more to do with prayer and fasting. Giving has more to do with prayer and fasting than it does with budgets and buildings. Giving has more to do with prayer and fasting than it does with budgets and buildings. In other words... First and foremost, this is a spiritual discipline. And as such, we should have no more problem hearing about it from the pulpit than we would about hearing teachings on the other spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer and Christian fellowship and fasting. So to begin with, I want to lay some theological foundations uh, now, when I was the rector at Christ Church in Winston-Salem, I actually had one of those little um, flashing lights that, you know, you put on the, if you're in the um, uh, uh, volunteer fire department, the little red light you can stick on the top of your pickup truck as you're going to the fire. I had one that I would just pop onto the uh, pulpit at this point, and it was the warning, warning, theology coming, uh, flashing light. But here is some theological good news for us, a groundwork for us this morning. This is something that is encouraging and uplifting, and so I want you to think about this. Are you ready for the meaning of grace? Are you ready for the meaning of grace? Well, here it is. This is what's encouraging. You are totally unnecessary. You are totally unnecessary. I am totally unnecessary. The entire cosmos, the universe, is unnecessary. None of us, none of this that is around us right this minute needed to exist. And do you know why this is good news? Why this is encouraging and uplifting? Well, since the universe is unnecessary, that means that everything is sheer gift, It's not necessary, it is sheer gift. Everything, every one of us is an expression of God's superabundant, self-giving love. We exist not out of necessity, but as the overflow of God's self-giving love. God does not need me, and God does not need you. He loved us into existence, praise God. And that is encouraging. Everything everything that exists comes from our gift-giving God. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. James 1. But do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And not only is our creation sheer gift, pure gift, but also our redemption. And this should be very familiar text to you. You probably know this by heart. This is John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave, yes, his only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And it is our salvation through Jesus Christ, it's in that salvation through Jesus Christ that we see the character of God's gift-giving, the character of God's gift-giving, as radically generous and lavishly sacrificial. Radically generous and lavishly sacrificial. So here's the truth. This is where things be, we begin to connect some dots. Here's the truth that tells us something about who we are at the core of our existence. Please listen. It's almost, it's, it's almost uh, you know, one of those syllogism things you learned about in high school. I hope you learned about that in high school anyway. If we are created in the image of God then we are by definition created to be givers like God. If we are crea- So God is a gift-giving, lavishly sacrificial, radically generous God. If we are created in the image of God, then we are created, you and I are created to be givers like God. And if we are not givers, we are not experiencing the fullness of who we were created to be. Does that make sense? I think it makes perfect sense. But more than that, when we are born again by accepting Jesus Christ and by being plunged into the waters of regeneration, we are made God's children by adoption. We're adopted as God's children. And if we are God's children, we should have a family likeness. Uh, There are some families in this congregation that are are, fairly copious. They're just copious. There's a lot of them. And, and, uh, and if you put them all in a room, I could probably sort you out about whose family you're in because you have a family resemblance, a family likeness. The same is true of us. As God's children, we are to share in his attributes, his likeness of being lavish, sacrificial, generous givers. So please listen. If joyful, love-motivated, joyful, love-motivated, Radical, gener- uh, gen- Radically generous giving is not, not a part of our lives. We are missing a fundamental part of being a human being in general and of being a disciple of Jesus in particular. In order for us to live out lives of radical generosity, we need to embrace what uh, Randy Alcorn... Does anybody here know who Randy Alcorn is? I, I love Randy Alcorn. He is the real deal. I really like that guy a lot. But he calls this the treasure principle. And we, have, we need to embrace this as disciples. It's right there in the Matthew passage we heard read this morning. Please listen to this. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, <clears throat> but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So this is the basic principle of the treasure principle. Listen, and you might want to write this down. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth but lay up your treasures in heaven. Now, I want you to turn with me, if you have your Bible with you this morning, or if you have your iPhone with you this morning, smartphone with you, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, and of course you have your smartphone, because if you didn't, you would be having an anxiety attack. (laughs) That never happens to me. (laughs) So I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and it's the chapter right before the one we heard read as the New Testament passage this morning. And that passage 9, chapter 9, is directly derivative of what is being talked about in chapter 8. So we're going to go back to chapter 8 real quick. And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth about another church, the church in Macedonia, who are a radically generous congregation. The Macedonians, though, and this is the irony here, the Macedonians were were not like the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a fairly prosperous church. We know that for a fact. Corinth was a prosperous uh, crossroads uh, town on the on the Isthmus there in Greece. Uh, Isthmus. I haven't used that in a sentence in uh, forever. So, uh, but the Macedonians were were not like the Corinthians. The Corinthians were fairly fairly well off. But the Macedonians were the last people you would think of being generous because, first of all, they were a persecuted church. <clears throat> the Macedonian was a, Macedonians were a persecuted church. They were enduring severe affliction, and probably as a result of that persecution and affliction, they were extremely poor. But listen to what Paul says about them. Please hear this. this is uh, 2 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, all right, are you getting the picture? Severe test, grace has been given, severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, all right, this is what's going on in their severe test of affliction, and their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So the first thing that I think this passage reveals to us, and if you're writing something down, you could write this down. <coughs> the first thing that this reveals to us is that giving is not the luxury of the rich. It is the privilege of the poor. Giving is not the luxury of the rich. It is the privilege of the poor. When I was serving in Armenia so long ago, sent out by the Catholicos in Etchmiadzin, Sorf of Echmiadzin the Catholicos of all Armenia, except for Kalikia. There's another Catholicos for that. But anyway, uh, when I was sent to serve in that country as they re-evangelized following the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, I was struck, I was overwhelmed, actually, uh, with how those people who were so extremely poor They had been through a terrible earthquake. Uh, They'd lost all their energy because nuclear power plant had been shut off. They weren't receiving any oil. People literally had frozen in some of those old um, Soviet-era apartment blocks just uh, the year before I came there. And yet they were so poor, they were so joyful in their giving. And they begged us, begged us for the privilege to give. Over and over, the poorest people served us The best food with obvious delight because it made them truly joyful. And probably you have seen similar situations in your own life. For in a severe test of affliction, their their abundance of joy. This is like their biography. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Giving isn't the luxury of the rich. It is the privilege of the poor. So where does that kind of joy come from, though? From Well, it comes from living out, living out our created purpose, living out the purpose that we were created for, to be givers. When we live out our created purpose, when we live out the truth that we are God's children, the result is an overabundance of joy. We are most like God when we are giving. The Macedonian church begged Paul, for the favor of giving. When God's grace has been truly received, when we have really received that superabundant, lavishly sacrificial grace of God in our lives, it makes us generous. Genuine conversion reorients our resources and our finances to the kingdom of God, and when it does, it is a delight to us. So there are are fringe benefits. There's there's blessings that come into our lives when we give like this, when we begin to take our discipleship seriously and we live into the character of God that we are created in and that we are receiving in our conversion. And the first thing is that we feel God's pleasure. We feel, we experience the sense of God's pleasure. And so therefore, I shall now try to quote from the uh, movie script of Chariots of Fire. Jenny, Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. How's that? Pretty good? All right. There's no Scottish people here, obviously. (laughs) But when we run, when we live into our created purpose, we feel his pleasure. We feel it. Um... I, I, you know, I I didn't, I, this is spontaneous dog analogy, woo-woo, all right, uh, but I, I've had, um, you know, I've had Gus up here on the farm, and he's, he, he has declared, because I'm, have this simpatico with him, I know exactly what he's thinking, uh, like all dog owners think. And anyway, but he, he is a farm dog. He, he is definitely a farm dog. He wants to be here. I could leave, and he could stay, and that would be great. But one of the things I found out, you know, as he's been able just to run himself silly on the farm, is that he, he is just so much more obedient because all that energy is going someplace needful. And, and when I tell him to do something, like I'll, I'll tell him, Gus, go get in the creek. And you know what he does? He goes down and he gets in the creek. But when he does it, I give him a command, and you know his his whole canine body language is delight. It's like ah, he told me to go get in the creek. Yay! I say go across go across that bridge. I don't you know canines can't point. Well, pointers do, I guess. But I mean, this is a primate gesture. And yet, somehow, he picks up on this gesture. I say, go over that bridge. And he said, I'm getting to go over the bridge because the master told me to. And he's just delighted to do it. He, he rejoices, and he feels my pleasure in his obedience. If that's true of me and my dog, man, God loves, he is delighted in our obedience. And we feel his pleasure. Giving jumpstarts our relationship with God. It opens our fists so we can receive what God has for us. And God supernaturally, superabundantly meets our needs. You cannot outgive God. Brothers and sisters, I am here today. I believe this. I've lived this. I've lived this uh, for a long, long time. And really, my wife, was, my wife was the instigator in our family about our practices of giving. I thought it was crazy talk, and she said, you're just not listening to the Bible. So, but anyway, you can't outgive God. We heard it this morning in Proverbs chapter 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your, fat, your vats will be bursting with wine. And when God blesses us like that, it is not so that we can spend more. When God superabundantly provides for us, please listen, it's not so that we can spend more on ourselves, but so that we can give more to his kingdom purposes. It's not for our self-indulgence. And so, as someone said, probably Randy Alcorn, I can't remember, but when God blesses us financially, it is not to raise our standard of living, you could write this down. It's not to raise our standard of living. It's to raise our standard of giving. When we are blessed financially, it's not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. R.G. Laterno, perhaps you know of this gentleman, was a Texan by choice. He was an inventor and manufacturer of earth-moving equipment. And eventually, he reached a point in his life where he was giving ninety percent of his 90% of his income ...to kingdom work. And he said, I shovel out the money... ...and God shovels it back into me... ...but God has a bigger shovel. Brothers and sisters, God has a bigger shuffle. And he gives us these things... ...so that we might be generous for his purposes. And yet so many of us, oftentimes, unfortunately... ...live like practical atheists. We think of money and possessions... ...as if there really is no final judgment no God, and no way to store up treasures in the kingdom. But when we realize that eternity is our home, it changes the way we treat our possessions right now. God blesses us super abundantly in order to meet our needs, and then he gives us an eternal perspective, that re- and when we give, that reinforces that eternal perspective. We realize eternity is our home, and it changes the way we treat our possessions right now. Now, all of this does beg the question: um, Why are so many believers not demonstrating this kind of demon, uh, radical generosity in their in their Christian lives? One Christian author noted: American Christians give proportionately less today, proportionately less today, to the church than they did during the Great Depression. Well, here is the main reason that I think uh, that genuinely born-again Christians don't give. It's because we think of God as a taking God and not as a giving God. We, we, have, we have misunderstood the character of God. We think of God as a taking God and not as a giving God. But listen again to that passage we read this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. John Piper says about, oh man, I'm getting getting the Reformed Baptist in this morning. I think Randy Alcorn might be non-denominational. I'm not wearing my clergy collar. God sovereignly calls me to forget it. I don't know. It's it's safely hanging in my closet back home. But John Piper says of this passage beneath the bountiful giving of verse 6 and the cheerful giving of verse 7 is a heart that looks up to God and sees, please listen, sees a giver. A giver, a supplier, a helper. When this person looks to God, he feels replenished, not drained. Just as a literal translation of verse 6 implies, his giving is based on blessing, on God's blessing. We need to begin to see God as a giving God and not as a taking God. Uh, I love this story. Bob McEwen told the following story about going to McDonald's with his son. His son wanted a large order of fries. And so he bought the fries and sat, they sat down. And Bob just instinctively, you've done this, you, he instinctively reached over, to take a couple of fries out of the package. I call that the French fry tax, by the way. If I buy you fries, there's a tax. So, but he reached over to, uh, to get a couple of fries, and his son pushed his hand away, and he said, Dad, you can't have any of those fries. They're mine. Bob said, I pulled my hand back, and as I did, I thought, my son has, a, has got a terrible attitude about whose fries these are and who bought them for him. He said in that five seconds, God taught him one of the finest lessons about giving that he had ever had. He said, when I pulled my hand back, I thought three things. Number one, I thought, he doesn't understand that I'm the guy who bought them. I am the one with the money. I am his resource. He got fries because of me. That reminds me of, what is it, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, when you enter in the land that God has given you, do not forget the Lord your God, that he's the one that gave you the ability to gain wealth. The second thing I realized as a father is that he doesn't realize that I could take those fries from him. He doesn't realize that I have control. I have control over the fries. Not only can I take them all from him if I want to because his attitude is so bad, but I have enough money that I could go and buy 20 more packs of French fries and I could bury him in French fries. (laughs) And the third thing I realized that day is that I can go get my own fries. I don't need his fries. To put in my mouth what really hurt me though wasn't his attitude so he said um he said uh all of a sudden god said bob this is exactly how i feel when you are not a good steward he said bob every time i look at you and see you get stingy with the gifts i have given you i say to myself bob you don't understand that i am the source of all these gifts and if I want to, I can take them away from you. And if I want to, I can add to them. And to be honest with you, I don't need you, nor do I really need your gifts. Bob said, as a father that day, what, I, what really hurt me was not that I didn't get a couple of fries to put in my mouth. What really hurt me was the attitude of my son regarding what I had just given him. I realized that's exactly what breaks the heart of God. So brothers and sisters, this morning... I want to I give you the training wheels for giving, okay? These are the training wheels. Training wheels, by the way, give us the confidence to start riding a bike, but the goal is to leave the training wheels behind. The training wheels, the most basic step in giving, the biblical step, it's actually in our Constitution and Canons of the ACNA, it's in our Catechism of the ACNA, but the most basic step in giving is the tithe. The tithe a tithe is 10% of our income. Some people object that the tithe is merely an Old Testament concept. But I love what Randy Alcorn says. He says, it seems fair to ask, God, do you really expect less of me, less of me who has your Holy Spirit within, and lives in the wealthiest society in human history, do you expect less of me than you demanded of the poorest Israelite? Uh, when I have had this conversation, and and uh, this teaching, and sometimes people will come after after the service and say, well, pastor, tithing is not a New Testament concept. And I say, you are exactly right. The New Testament principle is 100%. Would you rather tithe? 100%. So the tithe really isn't a stopping place in giving. It's the starting point. Lisa and I, as I indicated, we started, uh, we, we give a 10% of our First fruits as a tithe to our local church, which is Christ Church in Winston Salem, before we pay anything else, we and give uh, we give that to our home church, and then we give to other ministries beyond our ten percent. So our tithe, and, and this is where the Malachi passage we didn't read this morning, but some of you know it, uh, Malachi uh, chapter three, where it speaks of storehouse tithing. You bring that to, that was to be brought to the temple, and I think that the church is the that's a type of the church. And so, we tie to our storehouse, to our home church, and then we do give above and beyond, in fact, I would say significantly above and beyond that, to other ministries, particularly to missionaries. Now, um, I had not planned to say this, but I, I felt prompted yesterday and then this morning again, and so I, I, need, I think I need to offer this word. Please hear this, and I also, I want you to hear it offered in tenderness and with humility and love, Okay. It's not scolding or anything like that, but years ago, my best friend, whose name is Greg Jinks, who was also a pastor in the same town as me at that time, was teaching on tithing in his church, and a member of his church who had, let's just say, more than average financial means, pulled the I am a special sheep, I am a special sheep card. Essentially, he said this, pastor tithing to the local church is for the regular sheep. It doesn't apply to me. His actual words were, this is what he said, it would hurt the congregation if I contributed a tenth of my income. It would hurt the congregation. That's so precious that you're thinking of the congregation like that. My, my first response was, uh, try, let's see, let's just try. See if it hurts. We'll tell you if it starts to hurt. But he said, it would hurt the congregation, if I contributed a tenth of my income. And then he gave some lame, self-justifying rationale. But my real question to this is, says who? It would hurt the congregation. Says who? Your wealth means you get to disregard the word of God? Really? Who do you think you are? You are acting like you are the owner of your money. You think those French fries are yours. Wealthy Christian, here's what God's word says. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the full the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That includes you, the world and all those who dwell therein. This means that we are all wealthy and poor alike, stewards of all we have, and God is the ultimate owner. And so this morning, what I want to do to, to give us the opportunity to put our training wheels on, so to speak. Is in the back of your service guide. There's a little slip of paper there. Now, first of all, I want you to know we're following what the scripture said in 1 Corinthians, not under compulsion. You know, no, no duress, no manipulation, no force marches here. Please don't feel manipulated. If you feel mal- manipulated, just stick your fingers in your ears and go la 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 very quietly. But I want you to take that uh, 90-day tithe challenge sheet. It's called the Christ. I mean, Church of the Lamb. 90-day tithe challenge. It's in the back of your service guide. And the first thing I want you to know about this uh, as, as your hands begin to sweat uh, is that this is not a pledge. This is not a pledge. This is about a commitment to tithe. It is not a pledge to the church. Um, I talked to Kevin about this, and so Father Kevin and I are the only ones who will ever see these sheets, and the only reason we will see these sheets is because we commit to pray for you as you begin this 90-day adventure. Over the next couple of minutes I'm going to challenge you to make a decision to step out on faith. You don't have to do this. But I want to challenge you if you want to take this adventurous step with me, I want you to make a decision to step out in faith and commit the first 10% of your income for 90 days, 3 months, to Church of the Lamb. The scripture says again, we heard it this morning, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So here's the challenge. Are you ready? And I hope you haven't tuned me out because you're going to love this. If God does not bless you, if God does not meet your needs, if God does not keep his word in your life, then I want you to stop tithing. Stop it after 90 days. Something's wrong. Okay? So you've never been told that before. Now, I realize that some of us have never heard this kind of teaching, and you're probably thinking, well, this is just not a good time for me to start tithing. Brothers and sisters, it's like having children. There's never a good time to start. (laughs) Never a good time to start tithing. There are always going to be house payments and car payments and doctor bills and college debt and retirement plans, and some of us are saying, well, we can't even make our budget right now, and well, maybe that's your problem. You need to bring God into your financial plan. Remember that God can do this. If you're writing stuff down, you might want to write this down. God can do more with your 90% than you can with your 10%. Tithing is not a money matter. It is a trust matter. Either God can do what God says he will do, or we should just stop playing church. Because what I withhold from God when I don't tithe is not money. It's trust. Now, some of you are already tithers. Praise God. And I want to invite you to go crazy this morning and take off the training wheels and give more than your tithe to whatever kingdom work God is calling you to support, whatever that might be. And I'm going to pray for us right now. And as I do, I want to give you a moment to fill in that that tithe challenge. And if you take the challenge, then I just want you to fold that little piece of paper over and drop it into the offering basket as it comes around this morning. Uh, I, again, I don't want you to do this because you somehow feel pressurized. That's, a, that's from the Alpha course. Uh, that was Nikki, Nikki Gumbel said, don't feel pressurized. So don't feel pressurized, manipulate. I want you to do this because you are excited to see how God will provide for you and how you will grow in your discipleship. So would you bow your heads, and if you're filling that in, you can do that now. And if you don't have a pen or anything, don't worry about that. Again, it's not under compulsion. Father God, we do thank you that you are the author of all that we have. You are a lavish, sacrificial, radically generous giver. You've created us out of love. You've redeemed us out of love. Lord, um, if we are afraid this morning, please show us that you are real. Thank you, Lord. Uh, uh, Bishop Steve Breedlove says this is one of the main ways that you show your supernatural reality to us is when we're givers, Lord. So I pray that you begin to show this to folks at Church of Lamb. Thank you for the faithfulness of those who tithe now and who give more than a tithe to kingdom work here. And, Father, for those who are putting the training wheels on the bicycle right now, Lord, I pray a special blessing on them, that they will look back on this day and they'll say, this is when I began a new level of discipleship in my life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.